We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. This is episode number 480. It's a bonus edition of the show. Today, I have on the podcast Colin Cornelia. He wrote a book called Culture of Excellence, What We Can Learn from the Yankees About Leadership. And Colin, uh, first of all, he's a great guy, and I've gotten to know him over the past couple of years. We just started talking through email, through Twitter, and we had, I believe, a phone call maybe two years ago, and he told me about this project he was working on. He was writing this book. He has worked in HR for uh, a long time, and he now has his uh, his own business, Talent 409, and he he is obviously a diehard Yankees fan. But he wanted to write a book about organizational leadership and how culture can affect um, the members of an organization. And he wanted to do it by using the Yankees as a case study. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, different angle to a baseball book. And Colin says this is not a baseball book. And and while I agree with him in one sense, because you can learn a lot about um, about leadership and HR and all that kind of stuff, it is sort of done in the context of the Yankees and baseball. So it's not a traditional baseball book, but I give them, I give them sort of in that, in that category, at least that, that was the hook for me. And I'm glad I read it because I learned a lot. And I, and I think that it's the, uh, you guys are going to love it too, because it's, you learn 
a sort of a trip down memory lane with the Yankees. Uh, you go through history over the past 30 years, which in and of itself is fascinating. But then you get to um, you get to learn about everything that Colin is an expert in, and he puts it in context of of the Yankees and the team and how they were doing. Um, he asked me to write a a book testimonial, so I'll I'll read what I wrote for him. But you can also go check out his website, talent409.com/slash/culture-of-excellence, and you can find out more details about the book. You can buy the book there, and uh, you can also read some of the other uh, testimonials on there. But what I said was, being a Yankees fan, the stories that Colin highlights are familiar, but it was fascinating to read a different take that wasn't just about wins and losses. Culture of Excellence gets at one of the age-old sports questions. How does leadership and team culture affect the on-field product? The Yankees, with their eccentric leaders, compelling cast of characters, and sustained greatness, are the ideal organization for this study. I had a lot of fun talking to him. I think you guys are going to like this episode and I think you guys are going to enjoy the book. So go check it out and enjoy the podcast. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there's no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. And I've used this before to hire. Let me tell you, $75, you're probably going to get your candidate. You're going to get a ton of candidates with that amount of credit. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now, Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Guys, the wait is finally over and football is back. And you might not be at the game this year, but you could still bet on the game and on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure that you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use your promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, joining the podcast now is Colin Cornelia. I am uh, thrilled to be joined by him because he has a new book out, Culture of Excellence Lessons in Leadership with the New York Yankees. You actually reached out to me. We we talked maybe a year and a half ago, I think, first. You were a listener. <laughs> yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah, you were a listener of the podcast. You mentioned, um, you know, you just wanted to get some networking going, talk about the fact that you're writing a book and everything. And uh, so I remember that first conversation. And then I remember the email you sent me. And you're like, hey, I'd love it if you could give me a book testimonial. And the first thing I did was like, what the hell is a book testimonial? 
And I had to like Google like how to write a book testimonial. I was like, okay, I've never been asked to do this before. So that was a cool honor. Thanks, man. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. It's, it's an honor. Love the podcast. Love, love you guys. And uh, thank you for writing that testimonial because it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So the book, uh, book came out September 15th. I was going to have you on the show like three weeks ago, but the Yankees were playing like dog shit. And I was like, maybe the book title, Culture of Excellence, Lessons in Leadership, wouldn't hit home right now with how this team is playing. So it's a good thing we waited and and we waited and they're on a win streak now. Uh, yeah, I mean, they couldn't be playing any better or any differently, I guess, than, than they were a few weeks ago. So we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So talk a little bit about how you got uh, why you wanted to write this book, how you sort of came to this point all the way from from start to, to finish. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, almost a three year project. So I'm super excited to be on the other side now and just getting to do fun things like this with you and talking about the book. But yeah, a little bit of background. Uh, I have a, I'm a big sports junkie, uh, big Yankee fan. Uh, so uh, right there, there's there's part of the book uh, in itself. But uh, when I got out of school, so I played college baseball at Penn State Scranton and then uh, got out of school, got into corporate HR and recruiting and uh, Really, my entire life up to that point, the only serious passion that I ever had was was baseball and sports in general. Uh, and then I get into corporate HR and recruiting, and we start doing all this work within the startup organization that I'm working for in Syracuse at the time. And we're doing leadership development. We're doing culture building. So one thing to be able to identify great talent to bring into this organization, but another thing entirely to say, how do we keep them engaged? How do we keep them happy, fulfilled? How do we help them grow so that they leave or they continue to get better than they were when they first got here? And so one of the questions always on my mind is how does the culture, how does the team atmosphere of an organization affect performance? Mm. And and that started in the corporate world. And, and I just would like read every book, listen to every podcast that I could on the topic. And about three years ago, I decided that I wanted to do this work in athletics. And so I started my own firm, the Talent 409 Leadership Academy, where I do the same exact work that I was doing in the corporate setting, except now I'm doing it with student athletes at the high school and collegiate level. And so I'm doing all that work. And uh, as I mentioned, a huge Yankee fan, and, and I'm just seeing how the organization has changed throughout my life even has been pretty significant. So I'm, I'm 31 years old and, uh, you know, there's, there's just been so many ups and downs and good and bad and even ugly at, at some points. But, uh, there was just a lot of thoughts going into my mind that, Hey, there was like this 30 year scope that I could talk about and write about, uh, with the Yankees. And I thought, Hey, this is a little bit more of an accurate representation than like writing about the championship season, for example, right. Uh, which which are awesome books. I indulge in them. Awesome types of podcasts. I, I love them. Uh, but there's only so much you can learn from yeah. the championship season when everything goes right or, or enough goes right and, and you get those lucky breaks and uh, the adversity, you overcome that. Uh, what I was more interested in was in between all of that. You know what what's happening? How are we keeping it together when when it's not going as well as it used to? And so you know you take the thirty year scope of the Yankees and you start in nineteen eighty nine, and they're the toxicity of baseball. Yeah. Uh, they have you know uh, they're they're Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner going back and forth. And uh, my story starts on on the day that. 
Billy Martin passes away on Christmas Day of 1989. So I want to stop you there because I read, uh, I started to read your book around the same time I was doing the Billy Martin history episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like this, a lot of this stuff is, first of all, I, I, I did use some of the stuff that you had in the podcast. Um, so thank you for that. But I loved how you kicked it off in kind of a controversial way. Where where you're like, you know, not that I was happy about this, but if you think about it, Billy Martin dying kind of worked out great for the Yankees. Yeah. And it's a sad story. Billy Martin was a tragic figure, but you're absolutely right in the sense that he was going to come back and be the manager in 1990. And it was yeah. just going to be the same repetitive downwards, da- downward cycle that the Yankees had repeated in pretty much the entire decade of the 80s. Yeah. They couldn't get yeah. out of it. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's very unfortunate that Billy, it took Billy Martin dying. I mean, <laughs> I said this in the history episode, he's a tragic figure and that's sad. But at the same time, it it forced the Yankees to go in a new direction. Yes. Yeah. And there's there's like two major deaths in the Yankees history that I always play the, the what if game in my own head. And, and the obvious one is Billy Martin. And, and I can give you a little bit more context into why I picked that story. Uh, but the other one is Thurman Munson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not just his uh, what he could have done in maybe some of his final years in the Bronx. I don't know how much more baseball he had in him from the research I've done. Uh, he, he was getting pretty toward the end anyway, mm-hmm. uh, as far as his playing days go go excuse me but um man what what type of coach or manager he could have been in in the relationship him and, and george had i mean obviously you know who had a good relationship with george but uh you know i i could see thurman you know being someone who might have you know stopped the toxicity from from getting so bad uh so i always play that what if game in, in my head too had thurman not passed away uh what what could have happened there but the billy martin stuff is started as a joke uh running long running joke between my dad and i uh mm-hmm. my dad is old school yankee fan grew up seeing mickey mantle play at the old stadium loves billy martin to this day loves billy martin and i'm not here to tell you that billy martin was you know the, the worst person in the world uh, obviously he won a bunch of championships as a player won one as a manager with the yankees and was very instrumental he'll always be remembered as a yankee uh, but if you look at his leadership profile, and some, some of the things that he did as manager, my, you think about like Aaron Boone doing that today. I, th- there's just no way, not just Aaron Boone, but any manager. Yeah. There's I mean, just no look way. at, look at in that. I mean, think like Buck Showalter became the managers in the early nineties. And just think about the contrast in Buck Showalter style yeah. and what mm-hmm. Billy Martin was doing in the late, late eighties. I mean, it's, it's black and white. It's not even close. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And there's a, a really great quote from Mattingly, actually, and uh, I use it in the book. And, and he talks about how when he was coming through the organization in the 80s, he thought like the Billy Martin thing was normal. He didn't realize until Showalter came in that you need to have. Some Imagine that. Imagine Billy Martin being your only manager, really, in baseball. It's like, OK, I guess this is how it is. Let's get nuts. Yeah, yeah, Billy Martin and Lou Pinella at at one point, like two of yeah. the most fiery guys in the world. So Pinella kind of settled down, though. I mean, he certainly was remembered for his ejections and stuff. But I feel like sure. when he, when he was with Seattle, he settled down a bunch, um, yeah. and and I thought turned into a pretty good manager. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he 
great manager, obviously. And uh, I mean, he lasted longer. Or, I mean, he's he's he also didn't pass away in a tragic yeah. uh, accident. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. Again, it's like, how long did how long did Martin really have left to be managing? You know, who really knows? But he was definitely coming back in 1990. You know, yeah. that, that part is clear. And and it just would have slowed this process down. Um, you know, who knows if Steinbrenner gets suspended anyway? Uh, what what ends up happening there? Uh, but those those two stories are so important to changing the culture because it just takes away all of that negativity, all that you know energy vampire <laughs> that uh, yeah. it's just it's just all over the place in the organization. And then Stick Michael comes in, puts his foot down, and you know they take off from there. Yeah, they they were allowed to operate how they wanted to operate without without Mister Steinbrenner just puppeting everybody around with if he didn't like something he was just going to change it it didn't matter um yeah. i mean the stories about possibly trading bernie williams and possibly trading uh andy pettit and possibly trading like all of these guys that were instrumental in the 90s championships for rentals for random veteran players that were at the end of their careers because steinbrenner was a he was one of these guys that he had to he had to get what he wanted immediately and he had, he needed yeah. instant results he had no patience I mean, yeah. love the guy for for spending all the money that he possibly could on the team to make them better. Like at the end of the day, that is what you want in an owner, but also no patience. Yeah, yeah, he he was a visionary for what the world was going to turn into with instant gratification. That's yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> oh but, man, but, imagine mean, if he had to seriously. Work. Oh jeez, <laughs> it would have would have been nuts. But you know, seriously, you you think about Steinbrenner and. The, you know, so we've talked a lot of negative about him and, and Billy Martin in the organization. His story, Steinbrenner's story, is so interesting because he gets a—it's a forced time away, right? Yeah. Like he can't be with the Yankees. Um, it's it's a permanent ban to begin with. Ends up not being that, but it's during this time where he, he almost—I'm uh, sure—had like an awakening, and uh, comes back. He's still the boss. You know, things are people are still on edge. Uh, but you can see whether it's Buck Walter, whether it's Stick Michael, and then it's Joe Torrey, and then Brian Cashman. They're much m- more able to do their jobs than anyone was prior to that suspension. And that had a lot to do with Steinbrenner changing his leadership style. And did he ever fully trust his general managers or his on-field managers or even his players? I, I don't know. Uh, but he definitely gave more trust that that third time around <laughs> that he that he came back so and, what did you see and, and, changing like specifically is there one thing that you can like identify this changed yeah i think the biggest thing was and so this is why i say i, I don't know if the full trust was ever there but uh, they were able to coexist uh yeah. the, the most important people in the organization was steinbrenner yeah. whereas prior to prior to 1990 it was almost impossible i mean i forget what the exact number is that i give in the book it was like 17 general managers and 15 managers in a 17 year oh yeah span for the the organization and it's just it's ridiculous to think about today because it was tory then it was girardi and now it's boone and and then it was uh watson and, and cashman we've only had three managers and two general managers cashman's but. been in the organization since he's an intern at 18 years yeah. old it's un, it's yeah. unbelievable that he's been able to stay that long i mean props to him for dealing with the steinbrenners for for this long i guess <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and I think you give a lot of that credit to Stick Michael. I think he was yes. like the person who showed everyone that if you put your foot down and if you are confident enough in yourself, that Steinbrenner Steinbrenner liked that in his people. He he didn't want yes men. Like he wanted people that could fight back and, and that could uh, you know stand up well, for themselves. It's ironic. I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan, but if if yes. uh, in the episode where George does the opposite. That's how he gets the job with Steinbrenner because he basically <laughs> tells him everything he's been doing wrong and Steinbrenner respects that. So yeah. I know that's comedy, but it actually is factual. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally true. And, and big, big Seinfeld fan. And uh, I'm, I'm always so bummed that they never aired that scene where they actually had Steinbrenner yeah, well, uh, go up with, with have Elaine. Have you ever heard but... Larry David talk about that? Talk yes. about like the stress yeah. he had with like making the phone call to George Steinbrenner like, we actually have to cut your scene. He said that was the most stress, stressed he ever was at, on the job of Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. I, I totally buy it, too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it was I mean, a good was call, it. though, because just seeing the back of his head with the exaggerated motions made it even more funny. I think if we yeah. saw the real Steinbrenner, it wouldn't have been as good. Yeah, yeah, it definitely lets that legend live on in, in the show. And that's that's a really cool uh, le- le- legacy for him to have, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm sure there's probably a lot of people because... I mean, we're about the same age. So by the time the Yankees were winning championships, like Steinbrenner was happy, right? Like, mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. he gets his championships and they won so many times in such a short amount of time. Like, well, you can't really complain when you're winning every year. And then unfortunately, he started to get sick and older. So he wasn't around as much because of that. So I feel like if you're a little bit older than you or me, maybe you like really remember the crazy Steinbrenner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd have to, you know, someone like my dad. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, my dad tells uh, me stories. I mean, Scott's old as shit, so he probably remembers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, he's not even here to defend himself. No. <laughs> but he does. I mean, he was a Mattingly guy because he was that was that was his uh, his childhood was was the Mattingly uh, era in the mid eight mid to late 80s. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned Steinbrenner getting sick. I mean, what's I, you know, another kind of what if game that you can play uh, if Rivera gets those final outs in the 2001 World mm. Series, uh, you know, does the organization kind of stay par for for what they've been doing? I, I don't know exactly because I think there was already inklings that they were going to go in a different direction. Like, you know, Tino Martinez is, is a player that comes to mind that I think was out the door no matter what. Jason was, was coming no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. No, no matter what. So maybe they still go down that direction. But what happened there was they lose and then Steinbrenner kind of loses his shit for you know lack of a better phrase and it's like hey we did it your way it doesn't work now we're gonna do it my way and it's like okay it didn't work for one one yeah. inning yeah. in the last six years and so steinbrenner you know takes over he gets uh what, what was it gary sheffield rahul mondesi yeah so there's know, that infamous story of of cashman having a contract agreement with vlad guerrero oh, and, right. then, yeah. and then uh steinbrenner <laughs> going directly to gary sheffield and saying basically, yeah, I've signed Gary Sheffield, so throw out that that Vlad Guerrero contract. And I mean, the Yankees missed out on prime Vlad Guerrero in the mid two thousands. I mean, Sheffield yeah. was a good perform, like he performed on the field. But like, this is something I actually wanted to get back to. You talked about um, sort of figuring out how culture affects a team, yeah. and Gary Sheffield's not known to be a culture guy. Like, yeah, he, he could yeah. be a clubhouse pariah. <laughs> So, I mean, it's hard to identify those guys and how much that affects it. But like the, your book sort of talks about that, which I find really interesting. 
Yeah. And it's, it's like when things are going really well. Uh, so when was it, was it 98 when they were really close to getting Albert Bell? And, and then at the last minute, uh, they they took that off the table and they re-signed Bernie. I think it was after yeah, the after the ninety eight season. season. Yeah, that was when um, Bernie was. There was like a brief time where Bernie was going to sign with the Red Sox. I think right, and then, right, and then Cashman was like, "Well, what am I doing?" Yeah, yeah. He, the Cashman or Steinbrenner was like, "No, nah, this this not happening." And and I remember reading something about Joe Torre saying that we can afford to take that one bad apple because we have so many good guys on the team. We have Scott Brocious, we have Derek Jeter, we have David Cohn, you know, all, all these guys that, you know, really create this, this, uh, you know, for again, lack of a better phrase, it's, it's not really a family, but a family like atmospheres is a good way to think about it. And, uh, you know, the, the guy they end up sacrificing to, uh, to actually do that is is David Wells when they bring on Clemens mm. and they have the same conversation right before and Tori's like I think we can bring him on even though everybody on the team hated him at that point uh, from I think it was more from his time in Toronto than it was it was uh, with, with Boston so yeah. I did some I did some research on that for for a podcast and there he initiated a brawl in September of 1998. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Um, where he he just headhunted guys basically, right? And they, it was a big benches clearing brawl, uh, and that was when everyone was coming after the Yankees. I mean, they're 114. I mean, they're the 700 winning percentage. Like everyone's yeah, trying yeah. to attack the Yankees, and Clemens isn't going to lay down for the Yankees. But I find it interesting that once he's on the team, everyone loves him. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Clemens Clemens is a is a really good case study in someone who uh, was like a chameleon, right? Uh, he he just wanted to win so badly that he he was willing to sacrifice like this this Roger Clemens persona uh, in order to fit in with with the Yankees culture. Mm. Um, you know, whereas like the guy they sacrificed for him, David Wells, you know, obviously he was a huge pitcher in '98 and uh, you know will forever be remembered for that perfect game. But he clashed all the time with Tory, with with other players. He took Babe Ruth's um, hat out to and- the mound. Yeah. Yeah. And he took himself out of the World Series in 2003, a day after complaining or not complaining, a day after bragging to the media about not having to stay in shape and be able to pitch as well as he did. Took himself out of a World Series game after pitching a one, two, three and. Yeah, I know. That. He had a back end. That was the Alex Gonzalez game. I I know. Uh, I know. That doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, no. Wells is a is a fan favorite, I think, because he's like of that boisterous personality personality. A lot of fans love like, oh, you're gonna go wear Babe's Babe Ruth's hat to the mound and you're gonna pitch a perfect game. I'm cool <laughs> with that. Right, right. But yeah, he did some shit that in other clubhouses may have tore it apart, but because the Yankees had such a strong group of players. And I mean, Joe Torre, too, like he's not the best tactical manager, but he was the right leader for that period of Yankees players. Oh, absolutely. If if you watch any of those 96 like World Series games and you think about the context of how they play baseball today, you just cringe at at some of the decisions that that were made. But obviously it was was a different time. But, you know, the 2003, I think, is a good area to talk about your your point with with Sheffield because by that point the culture had started to break up a little bit mm-hmm. 
you know, not we we just talked about Wells, him coming back and and taking himself. That same game was the game that Giambi wasn't in the lineup because they said he had a bad knee or a bad back or something like that. When really it was because he was too afraid of making a throw from first base to second base. Took himself out of the only World Series that he ever ended up playing. Oh my god! And, and it's like, how how are you on the same I did, team as Derek? I did not know that. That's that's amazing because yeah. I I mean say what you want about Giambi, but he seems like a good clubhouse guy. He seems like a a guy that is not afraid to go out there and make a, a throw in the World Series. Maybe he doesn't yeah. have the ability to do it, but he was, wasn't was afraid to try. I mean, I think of talking about more recently, Giancarlo Stanton pulling himself out of the ALCS last year because his quad hurt. Like, dude, you yeah. just got back on the field. You hit a home run last night, and you're going to pull yourself out of the starting lineup tonight because your quad hurts? Like, <sighs> I know. I have a hard time looking at that as a fan and respecting it. I mean, yeah. I can't do what you do on the baseball field, obviously. Right, right. Right. <laughs> but I like to think if I could, I wouldn't take myself out for a little nagging injury. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you never want to play the comparison game. Like, go, oh, I could do better than, than no, these I'm not guys, stupid but... to think I could, but like, I mean, you got a broken wrist. You can't play baseball, but you're in the ALCS and your quads a little sore. Like Paul O'Neill played a world series game without a hamstring. Like, yeah, right. Right. And got a big hit that world series game too. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And, and well, Giambi is interesting because I think Giambi later in his career became a really great culture guy. And I'm not saying yeah. he was like the most toxic you know, person in the clubhouse, uh, but I think he still had some of that bad boy, you know, Oakland attitude. And he obviously didn't want to embarrass himself. And when, when you start adding that up though, with, with having multiple and Ruben Sierra was back on the team and he had supposedly said that he was going to be a different Ruben Sierra than the first time around. And I don't know how true that was, but you know, you're starting to see these like clashing personalities and not only are more clashing personalities coming in, but you're losing, you know, people like Scott Brose just had retired. David Cohn had moved on. You know, the people that kept that culture intact and then, and then you just have, you know, Derek Jeter trying to you know carry this over and then Clemens retires and Andy Pettit goes to Houston and, and everything. And by the time 2004 rolls around, it's a completely different team. And A-Rod's obviously a part of the equation. <laughs> and uh, just right there, I mean, that alone had to be, you know, so difficult to deal with between him and Jeter and and him and Tory. And then you throw in Sheffield and you throw in people like Kareem Garcia that were obviously looking to, you know, start fights whenever, whenever they could and, and things like that. And uh, it, it just creates a lot of strain. And, and I think like you can, fundamentally see that like in Derek Jeter in, in the way that he like operated on the field and the things that he said, like between the years of 2004 and 2008, uh, I don't know that he was like having a lot of fun playing mm, baseball. He didn't, he didn't uh, sound anymore. or look like it. He kind of just, <laughs> yeah. do you remember that classic picture of a rod catching a pop-up at third base <laughs> and yeah. Jeter standing there with his hands on his hips, like a, I effing hate this guy yeah. look on his face. <laughs> It's probably like from 2006 or 2007 because it's at the old Yankee Stadium. Right. But right. like that picture literally does say a thousand words. Oh, it, it does. And, and, you know, that was a huge part of the splintering. And, you know, what's really interesting about 2009. So I give uh, I give some heat sometimes to to Hal Steinbrenner, uh, not because I mean, he is obviously very different from his father. Uh, but initially the way he operated was, was similar. Uh, he would spend gobs of money and 
try to win championships that way. And and they they did it the first time, right? He takes over in 2008 for for George Steinbrenner. They win the World Series in 2009. Now, so many things go right. And this is what I'm talking about, about focusing on that one championship season. You know, Jeter, Posada, Pettit, you know, all these old core four guys have career seasons on the field. Uh, but Jeter also is more willing than ever before to open up to people like A-Rod and to let people like Nick Swisher and AJ Burnett like have their fun and, and not be this like, <laughs> I don't want to call him a dictator, but um, you know, just this is kind of cold stone, like no fun, you know, personality. Well, think um, about it. I, so I'm going to try and put myself in Derek Jeter's shoes here. I'm a rookie in 1996 and we win the world series. And then we mm-hmm. win three in a row in the late nineties, early two thousands. And so I see this works. I need to get more of that. And then yeah. as he gets a little bit older, he sees like other things happening and he's probably like, well, I'm trying to get us back to those 1999 era days, but like, I can't do it. There's too many, too many wild cards in this clubhouse, too many things going on. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had to then maybe embrace the, the other ways, like you said, and I think maybe that comes with age because with same with Steinbrenner, like, as he got a little older, he was able to embrace other ways. As Jeter got a little bit older, he was able to embrace other ways. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, an age and experience thing. Yeah. But the, the most the most unfortunate part of all that is none of the the core four players, for example, and even you know, the the Swishers and the Burnett's, none of them are able to replicate what they do in 2009 on the field. So we we go to the playoffs. Obviously, we get really close in 2010 to going back to the to the World Series. So we're we're not having as much uh, success on the field. We're getting older, and we're being a little bit handcuffed because we spent all that money in 2009. Now, the one really great thing that came out of 2009 was CC Sabathia, mm-hmm. and and there's the story in the book about when they were recruiting Sabathia, he had serious questions about their culture, and did he want to you know, come into that. Uh, and, and I think, I think it was, yeah, it was Cashman who convinced him and said that, Hey, this is one of the reasons that we're, we're recruiting you and that we want to bring you in is because you are a good culture person. Like you will help bring that, that culture back up. And obviously Sabathia was there from the, the past 10 years, you know, upholding that culture. Um, but on the field, this is why I give, you know, Hal some, some heat is they, they made it so that they didn't have a lot of flexibility to to bring in, you know, anyone else, much less you know, good culture people that had the talent to compete. Uh, they kept getting older, yeah. and then by the time 2012 happens, you know, Jeter breaks his ankle, and then the bottom falls out, and, and we got Vernon Wells and Reed Breniak and uh, uh, Brian Roberts and <laughs> all these. Oh yeah, um, they're chasing 2009. <laughs> they're trying to justify all that money they spent in 2009 with band-aids in 2012, 13, 14. And obviously it doesn't work kind of similar to how they were chasing the success in the late nineties and the mid two thousands by just yep. gobbling up every name they possibly could and crossing your fingers that it works out. That was sort of the yeah. strategy. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, doesn't work. No, no, it was it was bad from a, a talent perspective because all those guys were older and and they, I mean like it drives me nuts that we're still paying Ellsbury and he hasn't played. I know it's a shortened season, but he hasn't played obviously a single game. This He's one year. of the highest paid players in baseball this year because <laughs> because he gets his full contract and when everyone else yeah. is just getting the sixty game proration. 
Right, right, yeah, because they cut him before before that all happened. That's right. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, last year. But you see how Hale operating like his dad did those two times really yeah. hindered the team because now now comes into play what you have to talk about the business side of baseball and how the Yankees have to operate within the the realities of of today's baseball versus what it was prior to 2000 and prior to national revenue sharing. Um, you can, you know, what what I'm what I'm most interested in. I think that I learned from writing this book is the next five years. I just think it's going to be really interesting to see because we've seen the Dodgers do it right. Like the Dodgers, I think, are the model that you can spend a lot of money, uh, but you can you can also not decimate your farm system and you can be so competitive every year. Have the Dodgers won a championship? No. Am I hopeful that the Yankees obviously win a championship in the next five years? Yes. Uh, but I think the point is that in today's baseball landscape, Brian Cashman, if you asked him what his job is to do, he would say, I want to be the Dodgers. I want to put us in the best position to win every single season, not just sell out. And so they have that sell off in 2016. So I, I like to tell people that I think that was when Hale and Brian got into alignment. Like they work with each other now. Uh, and so we're in year three, year four uh, of this this new partnership where Hale has total trust in Brian Cashman to do what he has to do. And we're seeing some of the results of that, you know, whether it's a Glaber Torres, a Clinton Frazier, Luke Voigt, uh, Aaron Judge when he can stay healthy, you know, those, those type of things. And even some of the pitchers, Sevy when he can stay healthy, Debbie now and, and things like that. And it, it makes you excited uh, if, if you're a Yankee fan to consider what the next five years could be with this core. So you're, uh, and, you're positive. You're high on the next five years. Yes, I, I am high. I, I think I had somebody ask me this, uh, if 10 years from now, if the Yankees haven't won a world series, what, what would you say? And, uh, <laughs> I would my answer was the the only way I can see them not lucking in to, to at least one championship <laughs> over the next 10 years is if the bottom completely falls out. And what I say about that is, is the injuries continue to pile up year after year and, and they can't, you know, they, they just can't fill in the gaps or Brian Cashman decides to move on or Hale Steinbrenner decides to sell the team. But I seriously think that if Hale Steinbrenner and Brian Cashman are working together over the course of the next five or 10 years, like you're going to see, you're going to see something really scary. Like we, we think they're good now. Uh, but I mean, you know, Glaber Torres is only getting older and better and stronger. And, you know, some of those pitchers coming up Schmidt and, and Debbie that, that we mentioned now pair them with Sevy coming back maybe and uh, Herman and Garrett Cole. And like, I'm, I'm excited, you know, thinking about it. And and that's just the on-field stuff. But these guys seem to be clicking as a team. I mean, Sabathia talks about it all the time on R2C2 that like, they're super close. And he wanted so bad to win a championship with those guys because yeah. he was having so much fun. And that's why he hung around. He wouldn't have hung around if, if it was bad culture. Yeah, well, so I think of 2017 and it seemed like a lot of comparisons were made to 1996 with the exception of the winning part. But right, right. I'm not, and this is not going to be about the Astros cheating, but like it seemed <laughs> like they were building up to it. And it seemed like that team had, had a lot of character, had a lot of camaraderie. But then there's a big shakeup in that offseason, new manager and new new MVP candidate on the team. So yeah. like you bring in an opposite sort of style manager with Boone versus Girardi and you bring in Stanton, who gets a lot of A-Rod comparisons as far as. Is he going to be bad for the team? And I think it's unfair for a few reasons. First of all, A-Rod was a better player than Giancarlo Stanton is. <laughs> but also, 
Stan seems like a better guy than A-Rod was. Yeah. But so what is your assessment of that sort of decision by Cashman, which I think was throwing a big wrench into something where you could see the path going? Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if I think if you asked Brian Cashman, he would have done this back in like 2015, 2014. Um, But he didn't, he didn't have the ability to do it yet. You know, Hale was Hale still wanted to operate, even though even though I think Hale was always a little bit obviously conceptually different than George was. Uh, it's tough to to break stride from family practices, and and especially when the demand is so high to win in New York and there's so much pressure. Like I I totally get it, but I think if you ask Brian Cashman, he wanted to do this a long time ago. So for him, it would have been worse if he had let Girardi stick around, even though. Girardi and Cashman weren't in alignment. Like that's hmm. that's the difficult conversation, right? Like that's that's stepping up and saying like, hey, I know this is going to suck, and, and we may take a, a little bit of a step back here, but I'm setting us up for for better things in the future right. by moving on from somebody that overwhelmingly he did not think could lead this young core of Yankee players. He he really thought Girardi had communication problems. Um, specifically with with Gary Sanchez, but you know, with with a lot of uh, other younger players coming up in the pipeline and and everything. So, I uh, I, I know it was a change that not everybody would make, um, but I think that's what sets Brian Cashman apart from most people in like executive type positions. Is that he's been time and time again, he's been willing to step up for what he truly believes in. And again, this goes back to Stick Michael. That's what Stick Michael taught him. He's like, you have to be willing to fight for what you want. Not just because it's George Steinbrenner, but because you're, you are a leader. Like if people are putting your trust in you, you have to show conviction. So, you know, Cashman negotiates for all that uh, additional power and clout that he gets with the 2005 contract. Uh, otherwise he was threatening to leave. And Steinbrenner was like, no, 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 we'll, you can have that, and and then he uh, those messy negotiations with with Derek Jeter uh, during uh, Jeter's free agency after the 2010 season. The like infamous those got, list, the, the infamous yeah. list of shortstops he'd rather have than Derek Jeter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously, and and that got into the public, and that's like another situation where once that became public, um, I I'm just thinking of myself. Like, I it would have been very hard for me to stay par and to be like, no, we're, we're not giving in. Like we, we are giving you a fair contract. We are giving you more money than anyone on this market is going to give you. We are not going to give you even more money just because you think you deserve more money. And Brian Cashman like stuck to his guns and, and they got it done. And, uh, you know, so that's another example. And and then this most recent one, like, it's just a a lot of really great examples of, of someone who, who has the conviction to do things, even if they're not exactly in line with like what the old regime would have done for example yeah yeah i think it's it's going to you talk about the next five years though i mean if they don't win a championship in the next five years i think then it's fair to call cashman on some of those decisions because if if they move on from boone before they win a championship then it it might be fair to say that was the wrong decision that's not saying girardi was the right guy but it just means maybe boone wasn't the right guy also yeah, but that's also yeah. a, a reason why people are talking about. Oh, is Boone going to get fired if the Yankees don't um, make the playoffs this year? I mean, that's out of the question at this point. They're going to make the playoffs, but it was a scary <laughs> couple of days when we thought they were going <laughs> to lose to the Orioles. But um, 
even in that, I didn't think he was going to move on from Boone because of what you yeah. just talked about. Like he sticks to his guns. He gives him the chance that he wants to give him. And I mean, yeah. eventually he would have moved on from him if he do- doesn't win. But yeah. it wasn't going to be this year. Yeah, it's it's too small of a sample size, right? Yeah. Like you can't you can't make a swift decision like that in today's environment because the ramifications are are too. I mean. You just talked about it. We threw the wrench in in 2000, the 2017, 2018 offseason. Imagine if we did it again this year. Yeah. Like we're just, we're messing with the ability to have that continuity. And that's what leads to sustainability. So if you believe that you're Brian Cashman, you believe that Aaron Boone is, is your guy to get it done, you're going to stick with him and you're going to show him you're, you have confidence in him. You're going to back him. You're going to give him the tools that you need. I mean, I know Yankee fans kind of clamor about, you know, not making all these big trades during the, the deadline and in the offseason and everything. But I mean, I, I feel like Boone's got enough tools to to get this done, you know, this year. And I think we had enough last year. We just didn't get some some clutch hits and, and everything. So, you know, they're they're right there in terms of, you know, like winning the championship. But it, you know, again, yeah, it's it's the continuity and the trust between everybody. There, there's true alignment with the Yankees right now. And, and I think that's really powerful because um, it sends a positive message to the players too, where, where they're not on edge thinking like, are we going to lose our manager? Like, is the owner going to sell the team? Like imagine being the Mets right now. Like that, that's, it's, it's all, there's, right? there's a reason they're below, below 500, but it's like, you look at that roster and there's talent there, but for whatever reason right. it never works. Yeah, exactly. And, and you get like a, a Mickey Calloway, you know, same thing, Aaron Boone, no experience. And Mickey Callaway is a disaster from day one. And well, I mean, also I, he's in a bad, Mickey Callaway was, but like then you, you hire Beltron and he doesn't even get right. to manage a game. Never mind start spring training because of the whole scandal. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just a nightmare scenario, but I mean, yeah. I really like what you did with this book because it was, it's sort of like part history, part lessons in leadership, which I think, um, you know, for someone like myself, I, I, I don't work in HR. I don't really know much about that. So I can, I was able, I am able to learn about those things while I'm reading about the history of the Yankees, which like you got me right there. So yeah. like really nice job with it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I'm you know hopeful that it's, it's not just, it's like you said, it's it, Yankee fans are obviously, I think going to be interested in it, but Yankee players, executives, coaches, they're, they're all people and, and the Yankees, uh, the sport of baseball is a business. So we can all relate to business and people. And, and that's why, you know, there's, there's some stats in the book and, and things like that, but it's not really a nerdy study you know, Yankee book or baseball book. It's, it's more like, this is what David Cohn did with Chuck Knobloch after Knobloch made that, that huge, uh, blunder in, in the 98 ALCS. And, uh, here's, here's how Joe Girardi responded. That's to the not, interesting not stuff. Challenging. Though. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the interesting stuff that you're not going to get from the box score, certainly, and not going <laughs> right. to get from a lot of the books that just sort of highlight, Oh, the Yankees won or didn't win. So yeah, it's not just about the wins and losses. It's, it, it's the behind the scenes stuff that I think is why fans go to books instead of, um, you know, just reading the daily newspaper articles or <laughs> tweets. No one reads anything anymore. They just read Brian Hook's tweets. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he is Mr. Yankee. That's for sure. But yeah, it's, it's to your point too. Like, uh, in this, it's very hard to measure this, right? Like this is the most difficult thing. Like how does culture actually impact the performance of a team? There's no way to actually measure right. it. 
But if you just take the Mets, if you just go back to the Mets and you think about the talent level on their team and you think about the way that they have performed on the field, there's obviously some type of disconnect. I would have to dive in to give you you know, a little bit more information into all that. But, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody would ever argue the fact that a good culture ever did anything negative for on-field performance. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way to put it yeah. uh, and, and a good way to end it. So where can people get this book? Yeah, uh, a book is available online, all the major retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can find it if you are in the Charlotte, Scranton, Syracuse, New York City, or Long Island areas. As of right now, you can actually find it in bookstores. Uh, most of them are Barnes nice. & Noble bookstores. Uh, and if you go to my website, www.talent409.com, just click on the book link. There, Everything's right there for you, so you don't have to remember this conversation. You can buy directly from me if you want like a cool little bookmark or a sticker, too, and I can personalize it and <laughs> send you some positive notes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I'll put the link to the, to the website in the show notes. So if you're interested, go check it out there. Support Colin. He did an awesome job with this. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was fun. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. I had a ton of fun. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone. If you do like the show, we'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.